0: I'm assuming that most of you remember the 1990s. Do you remember the 1990s? You don't have to be an old timer to remember the 1990s. Well, let me just uh, append this to the 1990s. According to general surveys in our country, in the 1990s, 90% of the people would choose Christianity as their religious preference, right? Whether it's Protestant or Catholic or whatever denomination, they would say, yeah, I'm... I'm I'm with the Christians, 90% in the 1990s. And that's a pretty high number. It doesn't mean they're Christians, obviously. doesn't mean they're devout. doesn't mean they read the Bible. But, I mean, they, they were generally favorable toward Christianity, at least in the surveys that were given in the 1990s. Um, that number, as you can imagine, has precipitously dropped since that time. I mean, it has continually gone down. And with it going down has risen the uh, increasing hostility that you see and hear against Christians in our culture. Matter of fact, what is really interesting about the stats during this period of time, 70% of the people that were raised in a church that checked out of church, 70% didn't choose to be uh, conservatives or moderates. They chose to be progressives and liberals when it comes to issues about the sanctity of life or gender or sexuality. It was always like we are now going to uh, have a set of views that sees the other side, the side that we came from, right? Well, they're they're bigoted, they're sexist, they're racist, they're, you know, they're ignorant. They became the uh, uh, the, the group that has uh, targeted people like I assume a lot of you here and myself who still hold to uh, to biblical values. Uh, those that say uh, we're just we're, we don't like religion at all right has, has gone through the roof in our culture i mean it's, it's it's phenomenal. It continues to rise and the disdain for Christianity continues to plummet. I mean it it rises, but the the, the kindness toward Christianity, the the palatable Cultural acceptance of Christianity has gone uh, down and down and has continued to plummet. Listen, I, I don't want to get up here and you immediately think, oh, it's, here it comes, it's a, it's a doom and gloom sermon, you know, here he goes again. All the forecasts about the present situation in Western culture or in America in particular is, is never meant, as I often try to remind you, to, to scare anyone. We're not, we're not enjoying the, uh, the stats that show how uh, embattled the Christian faith is. Uh, we're, we're not trying to do that. We're trying to actually prepare you uh, for what is coming. Because the church of tomorrow going to look very different than the church of your grandparents' generation or even the church in the 1990s that you were a part of. Things are changing, and you need to be ready for that. It, it is, uh, as Jesus says, at least in our day, it's going to look more like in the first century when he warned his followers in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, that they're going to hate you, they're going to exclude you, they're going to revile you, and they're going to spurn your name as evil. And that's what he said would happen to those who followed him. Now, that's a, that's a pretty, uh, pretty uh, disturbing, disquieting list, right? They're going to hate you, they're going to exclude you, they're going to uh, revile you, and they're going to spurn your name as evil. Uh, that is uh, increasingly happening. That's all I'm saying by the statistics and continues to, uh, to ramp up in our generation, and, and we, need to be, uh, we need to be ready for it. And how do you get ready for that? Well, the natural response to that is, is concern. It's fear. It's, uh, it's, it's distaste. We don't want that. No one, if you're a normal person, and I hope you're a normal person, you don't want that, right? No one is, 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 is happy about that. And yet, if I remind you of where I found that list of things in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, it begins with the words Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, that, that, that's weird, right? That I'm supposed to be considered blessed. Actually, the next verse, verse 23 in that passage, Jesus goes on to say, yes, in that day rejoice. And here's something weird. Leap for joy. Yay! I got fired at work. They hate me because I'm a Christian. Think about that. That's just so counterintuitive. How do we get there? How do I keep my mind in obedience to Christ, trying to somehow not be completely like steamrolled in my emotions when people... uh, Don't want to work with me because I'm a Christian, or I lose my job or my profession that I trained for. Now, I can't even engage in my profession because I cannot stand for Christ with the principles of God's word and still be employable in this. I mean, this is the kind of thing that is happening in our generation, which is nothing new, by the way. As a matter of fact, what's good about reading the New Testament is it's read in the context, initially at least, when not only does the Greco Roman world see itself as an enemy of Christianity. But even the uh, group from which this, this sect, as it was called, grew up, the Jews themselves were opposed to it. And it was obvious that if you're a Christian, you're going to be excluded. You're going to be hated. You're going to be reviled. You're going to be seen as an evil person. And so when Jesus talks about these things, I suppose they'll become increasingly more and more relevant to us in our day. And I just want us to say, okay, how do we maintain this kind of counterintuitive response and, and, and not, be, uh, not be fearful? Because here's the thing, the, the way I respond and you, I assume, naturally respond is when people hate me for something, well, I want that to stop. I want it to be mollified and somehow mitigated. So if I can just kind of stop doing the things that, that invokes that response, that would be good. But that's not an option for us. As a matter of fact, there is a passage that we've reached in Acts chapter 18 that I think gives us the key for this in a scenario that's a lot like ours at least in the progression of our culture where we can look at these verses and say right here is the answer to us making sure that we don't get to the place where our fear right has us withdraw from the things that God has called us to be and to do in our generation if we can just understand and process these things We can maybe start to be obedient to Christ's words in Luke 6.22. So turn with me to this passage in Acts chapter 18. And if you remember where we were last time we were together studying this, we were looking at Paul in Corinth, a familiar city, because he writes two letters that we have extant in our Bibles. And those two letters, right, written to the Corinthians, we don't know a lot about the Corinthians just by reading those letters, but we see the origins of the church in Corinth right here in this particular part of Acts. But we split it up. Because now we've got a different thing taking place in Corinth that Paul, if we think back and even glance back to where we've been in reaching the kind of opposition that has now happened in Corinth, you would see Paul normally, whether it's Berea or whether it's Antioch or wherever it is, you would see him leave, right? Thessalonica, things get hard. They, they, they run him out basically and he says, well, now I'm going to move to other, other places, and that makes sense for a traveling evangelist, a traveling missionary. Well, if, if the heat's been turned up here, I'll just go somewhere else. Well, what happens in verse number nine is that God breaks into the scene here and says, listen, I, I don't want you going somewhere else. I need you to stay put. And I can't have you run away to another town, which may have been strategically okay previously, but now I've got a, I got a reason for you to stay here but I can't let fear creep into the equation. So let's take a look at what the Lord says. And if you want to define who the Lord is and the triunity of God, look up at verse number eight, and you'll see when when it talked about Crispus becoming a Christian, the word Lord is describing Jesus Christ. And that's the pattern, by the way, when Jesus appears to Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the apostle Paul, of course, in Acts chapter nine, and we'll see it later in the book of Acts, where Jesus himself comes to Paul in a vision and has a a message for him, and he's got a three-line message here in verses 9 and 10 that we can learn from, and the surrounding verses help flesh it out. So let's understand what Christ has to say to Paul when the heat is getting turned up, and perhaps we can see how we can avoid the kind of mitigation to our voice in our culture and in our workplaces due to the temptation to be fearful. So look at it with me, Acts chapter 18, verse number 9. We'll read through verse 17. Paul and his team are in Corinth. And Paul, here it gets this vision. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Here are three lines. We need to get every line of this and understand what's being said because you'll find it so applicable to where we're at today. Here it is, line number one. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. There's one thing I want you to leave with today. That's it. There is the summary of everything I need us to catch from God's word this morning. Do not be afraid, do not stop speaking, and do not be silent. Verse 10, here's the explanation. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Another four, here comes in, in verse 10. For I have many in this city who are my people. So two explanations for this don't be afraid and keep on working. Verse 11. He obediently responds. And so he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Very good. But, verse 12, Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. Remember, Achaia is the southern part of Greece. He'd been in Macedonia, the northern part of Greece. So here's Gallio from Rome. He's there in charge of this area. It's all under the jurisdiction of Rome at this particular point. And the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal of Gallio. And what were they saying? Verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now who's concerned about that? The Jews are. They don't like what's happening. They even had their their, their ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, there in verse 8. He's become a Christian. They're messing everything up, Paul and his companions, and they want it stopped. And so they're going to say, hey, Rome, you don't mind Judaism being taught in your Roman province. Uh, How about you get rid of this new thing, this new sect? We don't like it. You shouldn't like it. You should outlaw it. They're persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Not just because God, the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light, is being worshiped by the Jews, but they're now saying God has come down and is in human form, and we have this person named Jesus, and he died and he rose from the dead thousands of miles away in Jerusalem. And here's the deal. you got to put an end to this. This is a threat to the Roman Empire. And so that was the charge. And Paul's about to make his defense, and we see many of those in the book of Acts, and we're going to see more of them in the rest of the book of Acts when he hears this accusation and he's brought before the tribunal, and Gallio is there, Paul's about to open his mouth, and Gallio says to the Jews, hey, guys, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, verse 15, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself, deal with it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these matters. This sounds like a theological debate between you Jewish people because here's a guy who's a Jewish seminary grad and he's talking about this Messiah and then that's all embedded in your scriptures. You guys figure this out. This is theology. This is not law. This is not legislation. This is not something that should concern Rome. You guys work it all out. So he drove them from the tribunal. Had the big burly Roman soldiers get them out of here. And they all, the people that wanted to stop Paul from, from preaching, they seized a guy named Sosthenes. Now, he must be the guy who's taken over now as the ruler of the synagogue because Crispus had vacated that position and he lived next to the, to the synagogue, you might remember, and the last time we were studying this passage. And Paul had converted him to Christ. So Sosthenes steps up as the ruler of the synagogue. And in his new test of leadership, he couldn't even lead a, a charge against Paul and his companions by going to the pro-council and claiming this has got to stop, and it all failed. And so they're mad at their leader, the new leader, Sosthenes. And so they beat him in front of the tribunal. as They're trying to push him out of this, this, this tribunal, this place where he's there, in, in, the, uh, in, in the magistrate's uh, open space where they're going to have this trial. Magalio, don't care. He just put his cape over his shoulder and walked back, went to his own, you know, his digs, his municipal digs. He paid no attention to any of this. So that's what goes on here. That's the context of what's happening in Corinth. Three lines from Christ that get Paul ready for all this. And they gear him up. They steal his courage. They give him a kind of, 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 of courage to face what's about to happen. And it starts with these three lines. Let's take them one line at a time. Number one, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Don't be afraid. I want you to uh, keep on speaking and not be silent. We think, well, of course, you're a preacher. You're a missionary. You're a teacher. You're a seminary grad. That's what you do. You're a speaker. Well, I just want to remind you, anytime we read passages of Scripture about evangelism, about people caring about the souls of, of their fellow citizens in their generation. People that look around and they see people that are like sheep without a shepherd, and they say, you need Christ. You just need to know there are people that do that full-time that are professionals, if you will. But um, that's something that is really saddled on the shoulders of every Christian in every generation. Right? You just need to remember that. And we can identify with this passage because we feel fear and we think, well, maybe it's okay for me to keep silent because it's not my job to stand up in the workroom at work and preach or in my neighborhood and, and, and speak. That's not my job. And yet you look at Christianity from the very beginning and every time we see Jesus calling someone to follow him, he turns around and commissions them to tell other people. Go tell people, right? Go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So this is something we need to start to at least adopt that we can see ourselves in this passage that maybe you're not a seminary grad and maybe you're not a preacher, but you certainly represent Christ in this generation. And you know that the reason we'd want to mute that is because I don't want to invoke the hostilities of my coworkers or my neighbors or the fellow you know, parents on my kids' soccer team. I just want to get along with people. I just actually want to be known as the Christian who loves. I don't want to be controversial. I don't want to speak about all this stuff. And yet this passage, I think, does apply to all of us because we are all tempted to be afraid and to, to mitigate that. We just want to be quiet and we don't want to speak up. And I think that's a concerning problem. And before we get to the two reasons he gives at the beginning of verse 10 and the bottom of verse 10, I just want to look at the juxtaposition of don't be afraid, do your job. Don't be afraid. Do your job. He, he's saying, listen, I don't want you to focus on the fact that you have these emotional responses that are fearful, which, by the way, are very normal. As a matter of fact, jot this reference down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, when I came to you, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. So Paul is just like you and me. He's not a weirdo. He doesn't like you know people attacking him he doesn't like people hating him he doesn't like people reviling him he doesn't like people spurning his name as evil he doesn't like it any more than you like it he came afraid and the heat got turned up and 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 Jesus says you got to stay there but he says you have to not be afraid you have to do your job and your job is to keep speaking and not be silent and i just want us to think about the choice we have in terms of how we focus on what we are called to do and whether or not we spend more time thinking about the costs involved or whether we spend more time thinking about the responsibility that we have. You've got a choice. Do I focus on the fear or do I focus on being faithful to what God's called me to do? And I would say in this text, clearly, it's not focusing on the fear, even though that's natural. If you're taking notes, jot it down that way. Number one, focus on faithfulness, not fear. That's the first thing we do. We focus on the job, the task, the commission, the mission. And we say, this is what I'm called to do. This is what I need to focus on. I don't want to spend time thinking about, oh man, this, this, is, a, this is a scary thing we're doing. If I were a football coach, you were on my football team, and we were about to go down the tunnel onto the field, and we are about to play a team, and it's not our home stadium, it's the opponent's stadium, and it's filled with all these cheering fans, it's college football, and they hate us. They, there's signs, there's derision, there's people spurning our team name and maybe even our name as evil, and we're about to go down there and play this game. If I'm in the locker room focusing on the fearful things, the cost of this, saying, oh, guys, don't forget, this is being televised. Did you, know, you, you, you fumble the ball in this game, they'll replay that on ESPN. You don't want to fumble the ball. That'll be bad. And you know, when you go out there, you, you break through, uh, through you know, the shadow shadows of the tunnel into the sunlight of the football field. You know, everyone's going to be watching you. And, you know, I just got to remind you, those people don't like you. This is hard, you know. And, and, and I don't, I mean, you could even trip coming out of the locker. Don't do that. That would be humiliating. I mean, and if we lose this game, can you imagine? Oh, yeah, this is going to be terrible. They'll mock us for you. I mean, I could, I could do that, but I would be a bad coach. That'd be my last season, would it not? I mean, my whole point as a coach is to encourage you to go out there and accomplish the task. I'm going to look right past the costs. I'm going to look right past the fears. I'm going to look right past your apprehensions and your anxieties. I'm going to say, go, go, go. We have a job to do. And I hope we do this all the time with our friends. Right, You got a friend, maybe you got a new job, and it requires him to travel to go do some big deal on the other side of the country, and, and you're sitting there as this friend in this small group, and you could talk about, oh, you got to go on a business trip. Oh, that's, that's hard. I mean, you got you to sit in that, I mean, just the flight alone. Sometimes there are kids screaming, and then I you know, sleep in some lousy hotel, and it'll be hard. And what if you didn't even get the, the, the contract? What if you couldn't even sell it? That'd oh, be bad. This is raw. I mean, whew, terrible. What kind of friend would you be? right? No, you got a job, you're providing for your family, it would be great if you got this contract, this client, go out there and sell this thing, get it done. I would be a good friend to encourage you to focus on the job, be faithful on the job, get the task done, and look past the concerns and the costs, right? We do this naturally if if there's a crisis, right? You're, you're out there, uh, maybe you're up in the mountains, and, 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 and you got this, uh, got your kids out there, and one of them falls into the, the icy creek that's still, you know, fluid, and, and the kid falls into the creek, and I'm your friend, and I'm sitting there, and you're the dad. I don't say, oh man, if you're going to jump in after him, you're going to be freezing cold in there. Do you, you have a change of clothes with you? You don't. I don't have, I don't, I don't have a blanket. You know how cold you're? This is going to be, you can get hurt. I'm sure you want to jump. Maybe you should take your shoes off. I mean, I, I would, what a terrible person I would be. I want to encourage you to get him, right? Get him out of there. There's a crisis. There's a need. You're the dad. The responsibility, you go and jump in and save him. I'm going to focus on the task. Be a faithful father. I'm not going to focus on the costs. I'm not going to focus on the fears. I'm not going to focus on the apprehensions or the concerns. Here's the problem. You know if you think about it, and you're a normal person, I could lose my job, I could lose my friends, right? I'm gonna be ridiculed, I could be betrayed. I mean, what am I gonna do for an, I mean, you could think a million things about what it would cost you to be faithful to Christ at your job and in your neighborhood and in your extended families and your circles of friends. Yeah, you're right, we could focus on that. But if your mind focuses on that, you're gonna stumble and you will, you'll feed your fear by your imagination focusing on what could go wrong. What if, what if, what if? And it may be, and it may happen. And occasionally, Jesus even wants to spell it out so that you're not surprised. People will hate you. They'll exclude you. They'll revile you. They'll spurn your name as evil. But rejoice, right? In other words, you gotta look past all of this. And what is our responsibility? Well, I'm not a preacher. You said I'm not a preacher. I guess I'm off the hook. Three things. I know you know these passages, but let me have you write them down. First one: Second Corinthians chapter five. I know you know this text, but this applies to all of us, and I hope you know it applies to all of us. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Do you know this verse? We are ambassadors for Christ. Let's just think that way. Let's start with our mindset. What is it you're supposed to be faithful to this week? You are supposed to be faithful. If you are a repentant, trusting follower of Christ, you are supposed to be thinking like an ambassador. I am representing heaven. I am representing the king of heaven. That's my job. And in my mind, I'd like to be faithful. I'd like to get to the end of the day and say the ultimate concern I had was not even providing for my family. It wasn't even protecting my family. It wasn't me being the employee of the month. It wasn't even me doing the things that I'm called to do on my my job description. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I am supposed to put my head on the pillow and ask myself, how did you do as an ambassador of Christ today? Did you represent him well? That's got to be our mindset. And it's true of every Christian. If you're a follower of Christ, you represent Christ in this generation. Secondly, and I know you know this verse, but I'm going to have you turn there. You could probably quote it, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, because I want you to soak in every line of these words from Christ, verses 14 through 16. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, verse 14. Ready? You are the light of the world. You've heard that passage? Yeah, i heard it since I was a kid. You are the light of the world. Now, this is all an analogy, but think about this. You're the light of the world. Look at the next phrase. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I think about that. Even today flying on a plane at night. Look out the window. There's a city. There it is, all the lights. It's, it, you, can't be, you can't hide it, right? You, it's, it's there. It's exposed. The ancient world in the middle of the night, you're traveling into a city. You see it on the horizon. There it is. It's lit up. It's got torches. It's got candles. It's got lamps. You, you're going to see it. You can't hide it. Well, when it comes to light, even in someone's house, verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Well, they put it on a stand and it gives light to all that are in the house. The point of lighting a light is to let the light shine. And he says, you're the light and I've lit you up so that you can shine. That's the point. You don't want to hide it. And sadly, if you invited me to your workplace this week and I went around to everyone you rub shoulders with, if I were to ask them, tell me, is this guy a Christian? Right? Is Linda a follower of Jesus Christ who believes in the Bible, who trusts in Jesus? Right? What would they say? Would they know that that's true of you? Would they know not just that you claim Christ, but that you seek to live out all that Christ commanded? That's what you're called to do. You were taught when you were discipled to obey all that Christ commanded. I just want you to think about that. Would they know it? Would they see it? Would they know that you're different and that your values are different than their values because you're shining the light of the commands of God lived out and fleshed out in your everyday life? And I know that's what it means because the next the next verse verse 16 in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see now finally we get past the analogy to the to the nuts and bolts of it that they may see your good works right your good works and your good works are different than their works because your works are light and righteousness and virtue and good and things that correspond to the holiness of God he is holy you're seeking to be holy also in all your behavior to quote scripture And I'm saying, as you live that out, do you publicly live out the commands of Christ? There's the second thing. First thing is, I identify as ambassador. I'm an ambassador of Christ. Secondly, I'm called to publicly live out the commands of Christ. If Christ says, hey, I created the male and female, and I joined them in marriage, and what God put together, no man separated. Okay, my life understanding this thing, the cisgender thing was God's idea, right? Marriage was a man and woman for the rest of their life. Am, Am I living that out, publicly living that out? And unashamed, shining, not putting it under a bushel, that that's what I adhere to. Those are the kinds of weddings I go to, people that understand what this is all about. I affirm that. That's what I teach. I represent a living example of the commands of Christ, albeit imperfect. I get it. But we do what we know God has called us to do. And we, here's the key word, publicly live it out. If I go to your office, will, will they know you have a different standard of humor than they do? Will they know that there are things you will not participate in because you follow the publicly displayed commands of Christ? I mean, they should know that because that's your job. And I need you to say that, that's what I'm all about. I'm an ambassador of Christ. That's the mindset. I'm living publicly the commands of Christ. And how about this thirdly? Go, go to Acts 17. When, Acts, when Paul was in, in, in Athens, in Acts 17, he talks about the God of the Old Testament to all of these Athenian professorial types. They're all the intellectuals of the day. And he ramps up into this statement in verse 30. Look at this in Acts 17, verse 30. This is such a helpful passage. The times of ignorance God overlooked. There were times people didn't know and he overlooked it, but now, right? He commands all people everywhere to repent. I I, I want you to read that verse and think about the implications of it. He now commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere to repent, to turn from sin and to turn to God. In penitent trust, that's what he's calling everyone to do, everyone. My question is, How does he do that? How does he command all people everywhere to repent? How does God do it? He doesn't do it by sending clouds that spell out Bible verses. He doesn't do it with sparrows lining up and and tweeting a certain tune that, that translates into the words repent and turn to God. Well, how does God do that? He does it by calling you to follow him and become fishers of men who have the message of repentance. And that message is to go to, look at how it states it, all people everywhere. Think about the people you rub shoulders with every single week. The people in your office, guess what? They qualify for this phrase, all people everywhere, (laughs) right? They're somewhere and they qualify for all people. And God is now commanding them via your mouth to repent. You want to know what your job description is wherever you live, whatever you do, whatever your weekly schedule looks like. It's to think as an ambassador, that's my identity. It's to live out publicly the commands of Christ. And it's for me to speak up about people repenting and turning to God. I got got to speak up about it. I have to tell them you need to repent and trust in Christ. You need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And all I'm saying is the reasons you wouldn't do any of those things. One is very private. It's your identity in your mind. But the reason that would never flesh itself out in being distinctively righteous or being vocally evangelistic is because I'm afraid. It's not for lack of knowledge. I mean, if you've been to this church more than five times, you know clearly we're being called to speak up in our generation to represent Christ. It's not for lack of knowledge. What's stopping you? If you're not convinced, well, that's one thing. Let's convince you of the truth of the lordship of Christ. But if you're under the lordship of Christ and you trust in Christ, well, then we have a responsibility. We are ambassadors, mindset. We're living out publicly the commands of Christ. We live a contrasted life. It's different than theirs. And we're telling people why. Because we follow Christ and you ought to follow Christ because God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. Here's what he says in our passage, right? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Verse 9 but go on speaking and do not be silent. Well, I'm not a preacher. You are an ambassador living out publicly and calling people to repentance. That's what you are. And I'm gonna say, if ever there was a time for us to heed this passage, it's now. Don't be afraid, go on speaking, do not be silent. Explanation, verse 10, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. I am with you, no one will attack you to harm you. Now, I don't know if when I read this at the beginning of the message, you stumbled over my reading of this text, but I hope someone did. Because when I read that, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, I didn't get two more verses down the, down the list until I read this in verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack upon Paul. Wait a minute. Verse 10, I'm with you, no one will attack you to harm you. No one will attack you to harm you. No one will attack you to harm you. Verse 12, they made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Um, Jesus, I thought you said I wouldn't be attacked to be harmed. Go to the last chapter of what we have from the Apostle Paul before he was executed 2 Timothy chapter 4. Turn to this text and let's understand what's going on in this passage. How in the world does Jesus say you will not be attacked to be harmed, and yet two verses later, there's not one guy attacking you, there's not five guys attacking you, there is a united attack against you, and they're dragging you before the proconsul of Rome? How in the world is Jesus being honest when he says you're not going to be attacked to be harmed? Do you know a little bit about Paul's life in, in 2 Timothy? This is the last extant letter of the Apostle Paul that we have. and he has already said, up in verse 6, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. This is, by the way, his second Roman imprisonment. And he's saying this, I know that the time of my departure has come. Right? He's not talking about release. He's talking about death. That's why he says in verse 7, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. I'm going to die. It's going to be done. This is what's happening. This is the end of my life. This is the last letter you're going to get from me. I'm about to be killed by my Roman captors. Okay. With that in mind, drop down to verse 18. The last thing he says before the final greeting is this. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Was it righteous or evil to put the evangelist in prison and execute him? Evil. And he says, I'm going to be rescued from every evil deed. The Lord will, future tense, rescue me from every evil deed. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you you just told me you know you're going to be killed. And he will bring me, here's a key word, safely into his heavenly kingdom. Safely into his heavenly kingdom. You're about to die. Your head is about to be lopped off by a sharp iron utensil of the Romans, and your head is going to be put into a basket or into a sack, or it's going to lay there in the dirt on the ground. You are about to be beheaded, and you know it. The time of your departure from this earth is now ready to happen. You're being poured out as a drink offering. They're already beating you. They're starving you. They're doing whatever they're doing, and they're going to kill you. And you're using words like this rescue and safely. Uh, I don't think you know what those words mean, right? When Stephen was being stoned to death, Luke adds this phrase he had the face like an angel. And I remember preaching that passage. Some of you were here back then and said, well, that's kind of an interesting thing to say right? Face like an angel, right? There's something about his visage, his face, that, that Luke says, the historian, that this was like he was just like at, at, at peace. I mean, you look like an angel. Angels are, 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 are privileged beings. They have access to God. They, they serve in the presence of God. And, and here's Stephen. He's dying like an angel when he's being stoned to death. Stoned to death. And I told you when I preached this passage, I actually that week watched a a video of a stoning in this other country, and it's not what I thought of when I was a kid, right? This is a horrific thing to have people taking like baseball-sized rocks and throwing them at you until you pass out and you are killed under the weight of a pile of rocks as 30 or 40 people throw rocks at you. It's a horrific way to die. And yet here is Luke saying he died and his face looked like the face of an angel. And he's saying to the Lord, Lord, right, receive my spirit. That's a weird way to, so my question is, is is he being attacked? Answer, yes. Is he being harmed? Well, he's not being attacked so as to be harmed. I guess if you want to think big picture, and let's think about the words of Christ. He says, do not fear the one who can kill the body, and after that, there's nothing else he can do. I'm thinking, well, that's a lot. Killing me is a lot. I, I don't like that, especially if you're going to kill me in a painful way, like maybe throwing rocks at me until I die. That seems like something worthy of being afraid of, and guess what? We naturally are afraid of that. And I get that. But he says, don't fear that one. Here's the one you should fear. Yes, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who, after he kills the body, can cast your soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But here's the thing. That's an evangelistic statement of sorts because I'm turning that one into my redeemer and my friend, right? So if I have peace, peace with God, right, is there anything that could ever take me outside the realm of words like safety and rescue and peace and security? And the answer is, as Peter would say, no. Who was who died a torturous death. He says, no. I mean, it is, they're stored up for me and protected by the power of God and inheritance in the saints and life and nothing can touch it. You. You're guarded by the power of God. Guarded? That sounds like safety and security. It does. But it doesn't seem like safety. It's like Jesus in the in the hole in the on the cushion in the boat on the storm in the sea of Galilee and everyone else was saying we are perishing lord and you don't care and he's asleep my question is were they at peace or were they not at peace well they weren't at peace and and 12 of them said we're not at peace but one of them was at peace because he knew something that they did not know right there was a sense of security and peace and here's the deal when when Jesus comes to to Paul and says, listen, you stay in Corinth. It's going to ramp up. It'll be hard, but don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, right? And there'll be no one to attack you to harm you. Two verses later, you're going to be attacked. But it isn't an attack, a kind of attack that is ever going to really get at the things that ultimately matter. Therefore, let's put it this way in your outline. Number two, you've got to redefine peace and safety. You just got to redefine it. Peace and safety needs to be fully redefined you've got to say, okay, wait a minute. I may live in a culture that ramps up its hostility so much so that, that, that knuckleheads like, like Jane Fonda can say this week, right, that she wants to murder pro-lifers, okay? Did you hear that line? She tried to walk it back, but, you know, she said the quiet part out loud. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is the culture we're living in where the elites and the movie stars and the professorial types and the university. they hate Christians who stand for Christian values. I just want you to think about this. right? Am I safe? Am I secure in this culture? Well, it depends on what you mean by safe and secure. Oh, I am if I'm a redeemed child of God, preserved by God's power and grace, and my destiny is secured. If I'm tortured and killed, beheaded, or stoned to death, the Bible says you are exactly in the presence of a God who has protected you and you cannot be ultimately harmed. You just can't be. That's a big deal. I mean, that's a super big deal. Let me, let me show you what this looks like from, with the biblical terms in, in Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah chapter 41 with me. I want you to look at how this is put and this is the way we need to think. And now I'm gonna shift from the attack and what it doesn't mean it doesn't mean you're not going to have tribulation in this world, but I'm supposed to somehow take heart because he's overcome the world. I'm supposed to have some kind of peace. My peace I live, leave with you. Not as the world gives, Jesus said, because they base it on whether or not there's a storm going on. I base it on something else, right? My peace I leave with you. Not a peace like the world It's a kind of peace that takes you through the trials and the joblessness and losing friends and being betrayed and stabbed in the back and being picketed or having people throw eggs at your house or whatever it is that makes you feel horrible and afraid and say you don't have to be afraid because ultimately there's something that roots you in an eternal transcendent kind of protection that God says is ultimate peace and safety. Which, by the way, as I'm about to read in this passage, let me put it in New Testament terms, you do know that there are people that feel very safe and secure right now I mean, the people that sit there and, 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 and espouse all this hatred toward people like you and me, like, do they feel safe and secure? Oh, man, they, the culture's totally in their favor right now. They feel safe and secure. But as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, the people that are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. Here's the deal. They're not safe and secure. Did the people that sat there and ridiculed Noah, did they think they were safe and secure? Oh, absolutely they did. I mean, they ganged up on Noah and said he was ridiculous. And yet they weren't safe and secure. And it may even have been that Noah didn't feel safe and secure, but was he safe and secure? He was safe and secure. He didn't feel like it. People might have even thrown things at him as he sat there and told people why he was building this ark. In Jeremiah's day, everyone was going around saying, peace, peace. And God says, you know what? You know they're saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace for them. They're about to walk into my anger and wrath God does not immediately bring his judgment on this world, and they can sit there and say things like they want to murder people who believe that we should have protection of preborn people. I get that. That's just a basic extension of Christian thought, Christian theology. And they feel very smug and protected in that. But in reality, let's just think about that. Are they safe? Are they secure? We feel like we're the underdog, and we're not. We're the embattled people. We're being attacked. We are safe and secure. You just got to get a redefinition in your mind of this. Verse number 8 in Isaiah 41 might help you. Let's just look at this section of Scripture. Israel, embattled at this time. He says, you, O Israel, my servant. Oh, you may not look like, with the Assyrian attack and the Babylonian attack, like you're anything special. You're the underdog. You're the embattled people. But here's the deal. You're my servant. Jacob, another name for Israel, whom I've chosen. The offspring of Abraham. Here's a word for you. My what? Friend. You're my friend. The God of the universe I'm friends with you. Verse 9, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corner saying to you, you are my servant. I hope you are, by the way, his servant, ambassador living out his commands, right? Telling people that they need to follow Christ. I hope you're his servant. I have chosen you. I haven't cast you off. Fear not. Why? Same, Same exact logic that we see in Acts chapter 18, it started out of 33 times in Scripture we see this. Starting with, with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 15, fear not, Abraham, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Gideon, he's afraid, fear not, I'm with you. Jeremiah, I'm too young, I can't speak to those people about turning from their sin. Fear not, I'm with you. Joshua, going in, leading the armies into camp, fear not, I'm with you. And here it is, verse 10, fear not, I'm with you. Do not be dismayed. Don't fret. Don't bite your fingernails. Don't be anxious. Don't have ulcers. Don't be afraid. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Look at this picture. With my righteous right hand. When you're called in and fired. When you lose your social standing. Picture that. The God of the universe who now is saying, I'm your friend. Holding you up by his righteous right hand. Verse 11. Behold all who are incensed against you, all of them that are seething at you, all those people that hate us, they shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you, they shall be as nothing and and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you and you shall not find. Where's Babylon? Where's Assyria? And where are all the intellectual cultural elites that are bagging on Christians in their view of sexual ethics or sanctity of life or whatever it is they hate about us? Our call of the exclusivity of Christ as the Savior of the world. They hate all that. They're incensed about it. But one day, it'd be like, where are they? You shall seek those who contend with you. You shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, your Elohim, your powerful one, I hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Who's going to help Paul when he's standing before the pro Gallio, and everyone's there chomping at the bit to have him run out of town, to have him arrested for preaching a message he shouldn't preach? Well, here's Christ saying, I'll be with you. He says it to you, by the way, too. If you're out there really seeing yourself as an ambassador, living out his commands, and you're calling people to follow Christ, he says this after the last line of the Great Commission, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those 11 that stood there on that mountain did not live to the end of the age, but you're still here in this age, and it may be fastly coming to an end, but the reality is, he says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And whenever he says that, it's clear. Eschew the fear. Get rid of the fear. Displace the fear. I can't let the fear dictate what I say at work. I can't let the fear dictate how I act in culture. I can't let the culture shut me up just because I'm afraid and I'm timid. God is with me. He's going to uphold me with the right hand and everyone who contends against me. this This is not a prosperity gospel. You understand that, right? I'm not talking about you having every door open and this is some kind of, you know, business seminar where you get all the accounts. No, you may lose everything in this world, but you will win because God is upholding his servants with his righteous right hand. He calls you his friend and his Himself his your helper. That, these are gigantic concepts. You've got to redefine peace and security. You know, a lot of people telling Israel, wow, you guys are not in good shape right here in Isaiah 41. And God says, you are if you just are my servants. Cling to me, I will uphold you. His presence means everything. Back to our passage, chapter 18, verse 10. I'm with you even though... All that in verses 12 through 16 is going on, and we, we just read it, right? All the complaints, all the trials, all of the united attacks on Paul. And yet he was, he's not going to be harmed. Not if you understand what harm means. No profound harm comes to Paul. Not even when he is beheaded and killed and martyred. Here's another four, another reason for you not to be afraid. For I have many, bottom of verse 10, in this city who are my people. For I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. Now, that's an interesting statement. I want you to stay in Corinth because we're not done yet. You got, you got a job to do. You're going to speak up and you're not going to be silent and you got to keep speaking up and not being silent because there are people in this town who are my people. They're not yet a part of my congregating people, but they are my people, and you need to get the message to them and call them to repentance, and then they will visibly in time become my people. But they're my people now. As it said it's earlier in the book of Acts, those who, are appointed, who, those who were appointed to eternal life, they believed. There are people in Corinth that are going to become Christians. Remember the guy that was leading the charge against Paul? Crispus now becomes a Christian. Sosthenes in verse 17, right? He's now leading the charge, and he does it so poorly that the people that had him as their new leader, they were now beating him up, you know, in the courtyard of of the proconsul. And we think to ourselves, wow, that guy. I mean, you'd think he would totally redouble his efforts at this point, but here's the interesting thing about Sosthenes. It's a weird name, and it's a unique name, but in this name, right, that you read... You may say, well, I feel like I've read that elsewhere in the Bible. And if you have read the whole New Testament, you have read it elsewhere. You've read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. And, and Paul doesn't say, here I am writing you from, from Ephesus. That's where he was when he wrote this letter. And I'm writing you now in the shadow of some uh, you know, some, some opponents and antagonists of Christianity that have followed me from Corinth to, to Ephesus. Let me read for you the first verse of. Of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, comma, and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes becomes, in the opening line of the book of First Corinthians, the guy he puts his arm around and says, You guys don't know Sosthenes, you Corinthians, because he used to be the Jewish leader of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue. Now he's my brother. And he's with me now in Ephesus, not as an antagonist chasing me down like they did from Thessalonica to Berea. This guy's come with me because he's part of the missionary team now, and we're writing back to you, and I know you all remember Sosthenes, don't you? Think about that. In this particular point in Acts chapter 18, Sosthenes in verse 17 is not a follower of Christ. He's actually, by implication in this passage, the leader of the antagonists against Paul, but later... Within a matter of three or four years, Paul's writing back with his arm around Sosthenes saying now he's a brother in Christ. Was it true that God had many in this city who were his people but had yet to become his people? Of course. And Sosthenes is one example, and there are many others, and he writes about them in the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm just telling you this. If you wanna be encouraged, you need to think the way that Jesus was no doubt getting him to envision. And what he's envisioning is, there are people I'm passing in Corinth, I cannot leave this town yet because there are more people here that will be in the church. They will be Christians. So you need to envision, just like he needed to envision, number three, evangelistic success. And the reason you need to, at your work, not stop speaking and not giving in to your fear to be silent is because there are people there that you've got to think God's got you in that place as his his ambassador because he's got people that he's going to bring to faith in Christ. And if you don't think that way, you've, you've missed the whole point of why you are on this earth in this corner of the world, calling people in the corner of the world he set you in to become Christ followers. That's a big deal. You have to think optimistically. We opened our kids' wing here next door a couple weeks back, and I hope you're enjoying that. If you have kids, checking them in. It's a whole great... Brightly colored and, and lit up. It's, it's so good. And the old building used to be, that building used to be our offices. And uh, it wasn't so bright and, and clean and well lit. It was our offices for years, for 15 years. And I had an office over there in, in the corner of uh, the 140 building. And uh, when I moved in, I, I had so many books. I, even though I had nice windows there, I had to put bookshelves in front of the windows and um, books all the way up to the ceiling. And so I, I, I lived in a, in a cave with no, with no sunlight. I didn't see the light of day for years. And um, we went over there and toured it just before it opened up, after the contractors were done. And as I walked into the place where my office used to be, I stood there literally at the place where I'd spent you know thousands of hours in like a three-foot square where my desk was and my chair was. And I thought of the thousands of hours I had studied and worked and prepared sermons and done all the things I had done. And I thought about it. And then I looked up Thinking of all the thousands of hours, I had sat right there, and I looked, and I saw the, the, the windows. And I saw, it was great. I had trees and cars and buildings. It was like beautiful. I, I got a view. Secretly, I'd always wanted an office with a view, but I've always had too many books. So I solved that problem in part when we moved across the street to the 145 building. I donated a good chunk of my library to CBI, so they have room form downstairs with no view. But upstairs, where my office is... I actually, I made it my my point, when we move over there, i got to have a window. I want a window that I'm not going to impede with books or anything else. I want to look out a window. I want to sit in a place, which I now am racking up the hours in one little three-foot square piece of real estate, but I lift up my eyes, and next to my computer is a window, and I get to look out the window, and I'm so glad. And I secretly, I, I didn't even tell my wife this until yesterday, I've always secretly wanted to have a window that overlooked the freeway. That's weird, isn't it? But I've always thought about that. If I could see like the 5 or the 405 or the 605, if I could see a really well-trafficked freeway, I would love that. And I would love that as a pastor because I want to see the buzzing of the people, like thousands and thousands of cars that remind me of why I'm here. I want to remember why I'm here because I want to look out and see the people. And what's interesting now that I have a, a, a window, and it happens to be next to Aliso Creek Parkway or whatever it's called, I've got a lot of Alisos, and it's like spaghetti the way they plan this town. But whatever, they're all called. Half of them are called Aliso something. So I got a Aliso out there, and there's like six lanes of traffic, seven lanes, whatever it is. And 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 I get to see a lot of traffic every day, and I think about it. There's thousands of cars that go by my window every day, and and I often think as I'm studying and planning or doing whatever I'm doing to get this church going to the next level. I'm thinking, you know, this is why I'm here for the people that God has in this town that are his people that have yet to become his people in time. And I get excited about that. And every now and then I'll see, especially as they slow down and make the left turn into you know, the Columbia Loop here, I'll see that little sticker down there on the back of some of those cars. i go, there's one, right? <laughs> and I think about how many other people, stickerless, going by. I wonder one day, will they have a sticker on the back of their car? And again, it's not about the sticker. You don't, have to, you don't have to put a sticker on your car to be a Christian. It helps, but you don't have to have it. You don't have to have it. <laughs> but I think to myself, that's a sign for me of someone that has gotten to the place of, of realizing the importance of Christ in the Bible and expository preaching, and they think, man, I want to see this whole place. I want every last person that's called to follow Christ to get saved. It doesn't have to be our church. It can be any Bible-teaching church in the area. I don't care. One day, I brought my binoculars in. It was pretty new. I'd gotten into the office, got settled in, and I got my binoculars. I, I still have them on the shelf in case, I don't know, something goes on. I can see the top of, um, you know, Santiago Peak up there, which has been covered with snow lately. It's crazy. But I found out one day, and I didn't know this until I got my binoculars out, and I looked out my window next to my computer, and I looked out there, and guess what I can see from my office? A little tiny chunk of I-5. I see it. <laughs> God's made my dreams come true. I, could, I have to... <laughs> I have to get my binoculars to see the I-5, but I can see it all day long, just going, all those cars. And then I look down at my local mission field here, and I look at Aliso, and I see all those cars. And if I don't have an optimistic, positive, evangelistic concept of what God is going to be doing here, then I, I really have no reason to go through all that we go through here. And we go through a lot, and you can imagine, get plenty of criticism and all that, but here's the deal. Like the Apostle Paul, I want to say, not just for the present, but for the future, he says this, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I just want to say there's more out there that we've yet to see saved. And if you adopt that position, I guarantee you this, you can power through the fear by focusing on the task, by knowing that what it means to be in peace and security with God doesn't mean the temporal things all have to go well. And ultimately, I know we're here because our job is not done yet. And I want you to get excited about making some progress on that. Even this week, as you power through the fear to speak up for Christ. Back of your worksheet every week, I put books to read and, and, and things. Sometimes you'll see books come up a lot because you know they're classics, and, and, and this week's no different. I'm assuming I put Fox's Book of Martyrs on there. Did I not? Someone confirmed that. Yeah, I did. And, and I always do that when I get, run into a sermon that's gonna deal with people that have suffered, and I wanna be willing to, 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 to stand up and be resolute and be willing to suffer if I have to. Uh, you know, I thought of Luke 6, 22, immediately out of the gate when I started thinking about this passage, but, so I put that, I put that book on there. Well, this week, I started to read it again, right? I've read it a few times, but I read it again, just kind of getting refreshed at thinking it'll help me prepare the sermon, and I, and I, and I just quit. I, I mean, I was like in chapter two in like the third century persecutions of Diocletian or whatever, and I finally, I just stopped. Because one of my jobs as a pastor in preparing sermons, I want to think, I want to get in your shoes, I want to think about your work week, I want to think about how you do what you do, and I want to get you ready for it. And I kept reading story after story after story after story. Here's the last sentence, by the way, I read this week in Fox's Book of Martyrs. A guy named Quinton, okay? Quinton, and and I love how he's described here, he was very zealous in his ministry. That part made me lean in. I was like, yeah, I was sitting there in my reading chair reading this I said, Quentin, am very zealous. I want, I want our people to be zealous in their ministry, to not be fearful, to speak up. And then it says, being seized upon as a Christian, he was stretched with pulleys until his joints were dislocated. His body was then torn with wire scourges. Boiling oil and pitch were poured over his naked body. Lighted tortures were applied to him and put in his sides and under his armpits. And after he had thus been tortured, he was remanded back to the prison and he died there by the barbarities that he had suffered on October 31st, 287. And his body was buried in Somi. And I think to myself, I I read that and I said, I'm done. I closed the book and I said, all I'm trying to do is get people to put up with some insults at work. That's that's what I'm working (laughs) on, right? It's just like, this is like varsity, like Christianity. People that were willing to have their bodies torn limb for limb, and it's story after story after story. And not just men. It's not just preachers. It's women. It, it's young teenage girls. It's, it's chapter after chapter of people when it wasn't 90% Christian. These cultures were, they hated the Christians. And these are the people that, 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 that I think, man, no matter what I put up with, if I lose privileges, if I lose friendships, if I have people hating me online, I'm thinking about this, right? I'm not even close. So listen, I don't know. You should be reading Fox's Book of Martyr this week. I just want you to say, I'm willing, to use the words of Christ, Luke 6.22, I'm I'm willing to be blessed when I know that I'm hated, excluded, reviled, and my name is spurned as evil because of the Son of Man. In that day, I'll rejoice. And I'll know this, as I leap for joy, I'll know this, that so their fathers treated the prophets that went before. So we can put up with some. Some, some grief this week. Let's just be faithful to our task and not be silent. Stand with me. Let me dismiss you with a word of prayer. God, we stand in need of courage and strength. It is helpful, I suppose, to know that even those that I read of in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, they were scared. They had natural fears, but they were able to conquer those and even vanquish those in moments of great courage because they knew who they were following. They knew the God who upheld them by your righteous right hand and so i know that god we can we can look past the pain and the struggle and the difficulty of standing up and and the costs they they can be they can be made very small in light of how big it is to be your follower to be your spokesperson to be your ambassador in our age so god steal our courage root us and ground us in what's most important that we might not be ashamed of you this week Because we know the message we have to offer to our co-workers and our friends and our neighbors is the power of God and salvation for all who believe. So God, get us ready this week, even as we spend time fellowshipping after the service and thinking about this sermon and thinking about this passage as though you've come to us yourself and said to us, do not be afraid. So God, we trust you. and We look to this week with confidence and evangelistic optimism. In Jesus' name, amen.